Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Cinema Psych podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and we have a great show for you today. We have a guest host. So first episode, first time we have the uh, regular format of the show, the, the format that I told you about in episode zero. Before we get to our guest host, I want to go ahead and do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I want to go ahead and thank some of our donors uh, with a, a specific special thanks in a moment. But I want to thank my good friend Celeste Pilligard for her awesome donation and my sister, Caitlin, for her awesome donation. That support has uh, helped us get go- launch the, the podcast with hosting and with um, getting the better microphone that you're hearing my voice on right now. And uh, for those of you who shared and listened to that first episode, uh, it's really awesome that you did that. Uh, Please, please, please don't forget that uh, we still need some help getting this podcast podcast off the ground. So if you have a few um, dollars to spare, the GoFundMe is still active. And then in uh, about a month or so, I'll probably transition that to a uh, Patreon account. Okay, so without further ado, because I'm sure this is probably going to be a long episode. (laughs) uh, Let's introduce the guest host. My guest host today is Dr. Wynn Goodfriend. Uh, She is the professor uh, and chair of social sciences at Buena Vista University, which is much like Eureka College, where I'm at a small private liberal arts college in Iowa. I'm in Illinois, so we're fairly close to each other. Uh, She has a master's and Ph.D. in social psychology from Purdue University. She's author of three textbooks, social psychology, one, the most promising new textbook of the year award in 2019. That's pretty awesome, I have to say. Um, So I'm going to let Wind introduce herself a little bit more through some of my questioning. Um, And the big shout out goes to her because she gave a massive contribution to the podcast uh, startup. So I want to say thank you to you, Wind, and um, please say hello to everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Wind's good friend. It's absolutely my honor to be here on episode one of this fantastic podcast. And I want to thank Alex for inviting me to be a part of the project and just say I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm super glad that you are here so we can uh, talk about a fantastic film. But before we do talk about that film that you brought for us, I did want to find out a little bit more about you. Uh, So my first question to you is, what do you love about film? What brings you to this podcast? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so 
going back to my childhood, I was a really weird kid. I used to have symptoms of both autism and Tourette's. And Mm. I just didn't fit in with other humans very well. Uh, I didn't really have any friends until uh, eighth grade. So for me, I enjoyed film and, and live theater as well, because it was a study of humanity. It was a study of human behavior and why people do what they do. And I especially liked the idea that people are playing a role. And I, I kind of thought maybe we're doing that all the time in our in our real lives. And so I like the idea of theater and film being a study of human behavior just as much as psychology is. Which was why they work so well together, right? And which why you know this podcast is a great idea. People Agreed. who who may give small grants for this idea. Uh, <laughs> this is a genius idea, right? This awesome, really, 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 really cool idea. Come on now. Uh, it, on a similar note, but more along the lines of of your. Your training, what sort of research do you do um, and, and how does that tie in with uh, your teaching um, in, in psychology just in general? And then how do you loop film into that as well? I am a social psychologist by training. So my areas of research are domestic violence, trying to understand relationship violence, both from the perpetrator and from the survivor's side. What's it like to be in that kind of experience and and how can we prevent it from happening? And then I also study prejudice, including mm-hmm. sexism and, and heterosexism and homophobia. Mm-hmm. So together, that that's a little bit depressing because it seems like most of my career is studying sort of the dark side of social psychology, but really but crucial stuff. It's really important to talk about and try to understand. And of course, these are also issues often addressed in film. So I teach a psychology of film class at my university and clockwork orange. Whoop, I gave it away. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so one of my favorite films to show in that class is A Clockwork Orange, and that's what our topic is for today. Yes. So before we get to that, though, before we get to that, I'm I have sorry, one more I question. It's OK. It's OK. It'll it'll work in it'll work in in, in just a second. Um, what good stories? I know you have some good stories. What mm. good stories do you have about um, psych and film? <sighs> Well, I don't know if, if good is the right adjective for this story, but um, so when I teach psych and film, I try to show them movies that they've never seen before, which is not what they want when they sign up for that class. They want it to be all movies that they've seen and right. like Nicholas Sparks all day long. And that's not what they're going to get. So <laughs> they're going to get weird, obscure movies that um, no one has seen except for me and like seven other people at film festival or movies that were from before they were born, which increasingly depresses me what is included in that category. Yeah, it's just going to um, get worse, right? So, so I show them these, these movies and they're they're not very pleased with them, honestly. There's one week in my class where I show a Lifetime movie because the topic is eating disorders and that is their favorite film of the whole semester, which I find super depressing. Because they can, you know, secretly make fun of it or something, you know? I think they genuinely like it. Yeah, that's true. They probably <laughs> do. 
Okay, so, uh, Wind, what film do you have for us today? <laughs> well, surprise, surprise, <laughs> our film choice for today is A Clockwork Orange. By the amazing Stanley Kubrick. Right. So what was your what was your thought process in choosing this film? Well, this is one of my favorite films uh, for a couple of reasons. One sort of psychological and one that's a little bit more personal. Um, Psychologically, my favorite genre is dystopias. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate this as an example of a dystopian future. And of course, the the Kubrick vision is sort of iconic and classic. And so um, it's really important. Um, just for film history, if not for psychology. And the more personal reason I like this is, it sounds scary when I say I like it for personal reasons, but <laughs> it's because when I was in high school, I did an exchange program where I lived in Russia for a little while. Mm-hmm. And in the film, the made up language that the main character uses is about half of the words that he uses are based on Russian teen slang. And so the the Russian kind of tie is is for the personal aspect. It makes me a little bit nostalgic for when I lived there. Yeah, the the slang is really fun, and I, I also read that they did a purposeful mix of that those Russian words with um, Cockney slang. Right. And it it sort of flows like you don't even realize that, oh, maybe that's not Cockney slang. It's just right. It's just really fancy in the future. Cockney slang, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people don't realize the the Russian piece to it. They just think that it's like a totally made up word or something like that or something really, you know, similar to what uh, an English word might be. Do you have any um, examples well, um, so they go to the milk bar in mm-hmm. a movie and, you know, the milk has has drugs in it. But the the word they use for milk is molko. And so um, and he, he says like um, the vodka and, and that kind of thing when he's talking about women. Mm-hmm. And so some of the words sound more Russian than others. But um, but I like that aspect of it. Now, is drug uh, Russian or was that just a made up word? I think that's British. Uh, it's not a word that I came across okay. when I was in Russia, but I'm not sure about that one, actually. Uh, it's my favorite uh, word uh, slash, slash slang in in the film, especially when he says my little droogies. Um, right. It's great. And, and for those who may not be familiar with the film, when we talk about he or the main character, we are talking about a character named Alex, not to be confused with your humble host here. Um, <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure how we're going to handle, <laughs> uh, you know, differentiating the two. Right. Um, Important to, to know that you are not that Alex. Well, yes, he's a not, I am he's not, not a that nice Alex. Person. <laughs> uh that would be bad if I was that Alex. Yes, it um, would. Okay. So this film is useful in psychology for a number of reasons, but I think what you and I both really focus on is the psychological concept that's screaming at you for I would say a good portion of the film in sort of the middle section of the film. Um, and that's how conditioning is represented. And, and we mean conditioning in the, the 
traditional sense of the word, right? Um, so right, the, the Pavlovian sense of the word, right? Exactly. So what? Because you did write a Psychology Today piece on this, I'll, I'll defer to you on explaining it. So what? about the conditioning that you see in the film makes it Pavlovian or classical? Right. So when I'm talking about this with my students, we start with just what what is classical conditioning, right? And and lots of people are at least a little bit familiar with the classic study done by Pavlov with Mm -hmm. dogs and salivation, right? So the idea is that Pavlov... He didn't intentionally uh, study conditioning that was sort of an accident in his lab. Yeah, it's a great he, story he about studying, that. He was studying digestion with dogs and he's trying mm-hmm. to measure how much they salivate. And they started to predict that they were going to be fed by these cues that they had learned in their environment, such right. as him walking down the hallway and him wearing a white lab coat. And it was messing up his experiment. <laughs> so he actually <laughs> started to train the dogs to only salivate when they heard a noise. And right. the, the urban legend is that it was a bell. Now, Pavlov didn't actually use a bell. He used a metronome and a tuning fork and a whistle. Mm-hmm. But everybody always says bell. So, okay, just putting out there, it's not actually a bell, but for the purposes of today, we'll, we'll say bell or noise. So he trains them to hear this bell, and they learn that that's a cue that they're about to be fed. And so after multiple pairings of bell leads to food, they start to salivate when they hear the bell. So they've mm-hmm. learned to make this association in their environment. And it's an automatic, instinctive reaction. Right. So Pavlov is arguing that it's really on the, the physical level for the dogs. They're not sitting there logicking it out, really. Right. So that's where we see the classical conditioning in the film. So Alex is this very violent character. He's a murderer. He's a rapist. He assaults people on the street. And so he eventually goes to prison for murder. And he is. Which I, I will say, by the way, since we both recently watched the film, right. it's almost an accidental murder. And when you see his face, uh, when they say that the old woman was murdered, he's right. like, wait, what? That's interesting, though, because is he upset? That he murdered someone or is he upset that now he knows for sure he's going to go to jail? Uh, yeah, ambiguous. <laughs> right. It looks, I mean, from a per, from a personal standpoint, it looked like fear to me. But, right. you know, yeah, it, you're it, like, oh, I'm screwed now. <laughs> possible. Not, yeah. Not like regret that I just murdered someone. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> but continue. Yeah, go ahead. There are a lot of really debatable things in the movie, which is one of the reasons I love it. So. So anyway, he, he goes to jail and he ends up this treatment that he gets all excited about because instead of spending years more in prison, he can get out in two weeks. And so Mm -hmm. the treatment ends up being this classical conditioning where they give him a shot several times a day and they don't actually tell him what the shot is, but the shot is going to cause him to be nauseated a few minutes later. Right. And before the shot kicks in, they hook him up to this machine where he's forced to watch really violent movies. And as he's watching these violent movies, he starts to feel the nausea. Mm-hmm. And so the classical conditioning for him is whenever he starts to think about violence, he has this physical instinctive reaction where he starts to feel nauseated. Yeah. And and that's the quick classical conditioning. And eventually it becomes... Um, not it becomes learned in the sense that his body does it automatically and 
they go through this whole song and dance number of showing it to, you know, the officials, the warden of the prison where he was from, uh, and other members of high, high, I suppose, British society, uh, that when he tries to act violently or lasciviously, uh, he can't because he wants to barf. They right. never show him barfing, of- though. <laughs> no, he he starts to sort of get gassy and he sort of goes into the fetal position. But yeah. when the thought of violence instinctively causes him to feel this nausea. And that's the classical conditioning piece to it. Yeah. And it really shouldn't be confused with the other major form of conditioning that many people might be familiar with, which is operant conditioning, you know, the patterns of reinforcement and punishment. And I think it's it. it it's important to distinguish the two because a lot of words get thrown around in the film that pull you to operating conditioning because the word punishment is used. Right. Right. And it's specifically used by um, the doctor. Uh, right. Which is unfortunate from a, a pedological point of view. <laughs> right. <laughs> a pedological and pedantical point of view. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he says, oh, it's just a punishment. And what is that punishment, Wind? Well, when the doctor is referring to the punishment, he's talking about what I think we would refer to as compound conditioning. Mm-hmm. So basically, Alex isn't particularly, in, you know, enjoying the nausea, but he doesn't get really upset about this treatment until he realizes that the score, the music in one of the films mm-hmm. is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And Alex has this kind of quirk to his character in that despite his horrible violence and toxic masculinity, he really likes Beethoven. <laughs> so yeah. he starts to feel this association where when he hears Beethoven's Ninth, he then feels nausea and that's what's really upsetting to him. And so that's the punishment that the, the psychiatrist who's or psychologist who's sort of overseeing this notices and says, Oh, well, here's the punishment aspect. Right. Which is interesting because it implies that what was happening before was not supposed to be punishment. Yeah, that's true. Um, that it was just, you know, science. Right. <laughs> Treatment. We're going to make this person better. But, you know, if he hates Beethoven after this, if Beethoven makes him physically sick, then. Eh. Right. And so it's it's sort of a happy coincidence from their point of view. But yeah. uh, the, the term from psychology would be compound conditioning, where right. now we sort of accidentally conditioned him to the Beethoven as well as to the violence. Yes, a double whammy from Alex's perspective that both of them now cause this uh, nauseated feeling. Um, He also describes it as like numbness Mm -hmm. and uh, just general unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. And, that, and wanting wanting to snuff it or or kill himself, right? Um, and that becomes pretty important later in the film. Uh,
was the next day, brothers, and I had truly done my best morning and afternoon to play it their way and sit like a horror show cooperative malchick in the chair of torture while they flashed nasty bits of ultraviolence on the screen. Though not on the soundtrack, my brothers, the only sound being music. Then I noticed in all my pain and sickness what music it was that like cracked and boomed. It was Ludwig van. Ninth Symphony, Fourth Movement. Now, the interesting thing about the classical conditioning, though, is it's not just Alex. Right. Which is so well done by Kubrick in this case, because it's very subtle, but it's still there. And and what what, what uh, aspect of that is, is in the film? So what I find really interesting is that there's a there's a second character who experiences classical conditioning. And so, so earlier in the movie, before Alex is arrested, he, he breaks into a house with his, with his troops or his, his gang members. And it's a, a married couple who are in this house and he, he rapes and assaults the woman who's there. And the I'm going to go ahead and play a clip of that oh, great. for everyone to hear. And then we'll come back to it. Could that be? I'll go and see. Yes? Who is it? Excuse me, sis. Can you please help? There's been a terrible accident. My friend's in the middle of the road, bleeding to death. Can I please use your telephone for an ambulance? 
I'm sorry, but we don't have a telephone. You'll have to go somewhere else. But this is... It's a matter of life and death. Who is it, dear? There's a young man here. He says there's been an accident. He wants to use the telephone. Well, I suppose you'd better let him in. Well, wait a minute, will you? I'm sorry, but we don't usually let strangers in in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> So, so as you heard, the the man who is having to watch this whole thing go down with his wife, um, he's observing this, and and while Alex is doing the assault, he's he's singing this song, "Singing in the Rain." Mm-hmm. And so then later in the film, Alex has gone to prison. He's gone through the treatment. He's released, and he's he's violently beat up by the police, and he can't defend himself because it makes him sick. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of stumbling through the woods after getting beaten up by the police, and he he gets to this person's house sort of accidentally and the guy takes him in for you know various <laughs> motivations but um he doesn't recognize alex because alex was wearing a mask at the time right. of the assault mm-hmm. and so alex kind of lets his guard down and is taking a bath and relaxing and he starts singing the same song singing in the rain and it's only then that the the husband has this emotional sort of biological reaction to this song in Alex's voice of like extreme rage. Right. Right. And it's, and it's the association of this song with the feelings that he had during the actual assault. Yeah. Uh, It's, 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 it's almost, you have to wonder. Alex recognizes him. Right. And I, maybe subconsciously thinks it's a good idea to start singing the song. I don't know if he starts singing it because he's in the same place and it's some sort of like place memory, like method of loci type of thing. I don't know if that's Mm. it, but I, I think another interpretation is, so Alex has gone through this treatment where Despite his inner nature, he now cannot be violent. But it hasn't changed other aspects of his character. So he's still pretty reckless. And I think he still has sort of a feeling of invulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so I think he lets his guard down you know, a little early and um, 
I, I think he does it without really realizing it. Now, now maybe on an unconscious level, he's wanting to get caught because he's like a patient or something. So again, we 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 see a point in the film that's kind of debatable. What are people's motivations? And that's another reason that I love this film so much. Yeah, um, it. <laughs> You, you have to think about you have to wonder if he did it on purpose or if, if it was subconscious in the sense that, you know, this guy won't remember me. Right. He's not he's, listening on the other side of the door. But as soon as Alex starts to suspect that the guy does recognize him, he tries to get out of town. He's like, yeah. you know, thanks a lot. I got to go. And by then the guy has recognized him and drugged him. Yeah, and he was trying to figure out what was in that wine glass. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Knowing nothing about wine because he drinks milk with drugs in it, with right. PCP in it. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of parallels too. So uh, you had some, you had some notes I saw about, the connection with the book. Did you want to explain the connections with the book? Well, so one of the things that I find fascinating about this film and, and Kubrick's sort of vision and what made the book famous based on the film was that the film was based on the American version of the book, which is not the same as the British version of the book, which was the British version is published first. And it I has, know that. it has an extra chapter that the American book does not have. So it's published in in England and and the author is British and he he sells it to an American publisher who says, I don't like the end. We're just going to chop off the last chapter. And at the time, uh, the author of the book really needed money. <laughs> and he's like, well, if that's what it takes to publish my book, I OK, I guess I'll, I'll do that. But it's a totally defending. And and Kubrick used the American version of the book to make the film. Okay. But in, in the book, in this extra chapter, it so um, the last chapter starts when the when the movie ends. So the last scene of the movie is Alex has basically gone through an extinction process where he can now be violent again without feeling the nausea. And he says, I was right. cured. All right. As in I was cured from the, the treatment and I'm back to myself. Right. In the last chapter of the book that that is missing from the old American versions, if you get a new edition, it's it's put back in there now. Okay. But in the original version of the book, um, in the last chapter, he he basically gets out of the hospital and he's wandering around and he's like, "All right, I'm going to go back to my old ways of murdering and and raping." And he he gets a new gang and they do that for a while and he's just bored and he doesn't like it anymore. He doesn't feel the excitement. He doesn't, he doesn't get energized by it. And he ends up going to this little cafe by himself and he's like drinking tea. And then he sees one of his old gang members in this little cafe with a woman and they're married. And he decides Hmm. that's what I want now. I want to just grow up and be an actual human and find a woman and have a baby and start a family. And so it's this intrinsic motivation for him to change into what we tried to force him to change into with the therapy. And the idea mm-hmm. was that the therapy didn't work because he's not a clockwork orange. He's not a mechanical robot that we can control. 
right. he has to decide to change himself. And that's right. how the original book ends. Yeah, that's a great point to the overall morality idea, the overall thematic quality of the film, which is about morality. Can you really condition somebody to be a good person? And are they good if they're forced to be good? And are, yeah, and are they good if they're forced to be good? And I think we can and, and research likely backs this up. I think we can be pretty confident in saying that probably not. Right. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of research shows that um, for any kind of therapy to work or any kind of treatment, the, the person has to really want to change. So, you right. know, it's like something as simple as I'm going to try to stop smoking and I'm going to go to a hypnotist or something like that. The person has to really want it for that to work. Right. Exactly. Uh, you, you, you need to have the uh, wherewithal to, to understand that you have a problem first, right? right? Alex doesn't think he has a problem right. in the film. Uh, and then, you, like you said, you have to have that motivate that intrinsic motivation to, to actually then deal with the problem. And again, he doesn't think he has a problem. So why is he going to go deal with it? Right. And, and this is something that I see in research on domestic violence, right? One of my main areas of research is these perpetrators of relationship violence, male, female, you know, anyone who's doing this, if they don't think it's a problem to be violent toward their partner, you can mm -hmm. put them in anger management classes, you can put them in jail, you can make them pay a fine. That's not going to stop it. Mm -hmm. They have to decide what I'm doing is wrong. Yeah, yeah, that it unfortunately a fact of these relationships so you had a uh an an interesting find what are these pavlock bracelets <laughs> so i just saw this coming across my facebook advertising about a week ago there's this new product that's a little bracelet you can wear it looks like a Fitbit or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's the, the brand name. They're not paying us for this. I'll just say that. <laughs> the brand name. Oh, right. Is, exactly. Is, yeah. Is, no money. I don't even know right. who they we, are. We're not getting any money. So, or you're not getting any money, at least. So um, I, I'm not either. Now I feel like <laughs> implying that I am getting paid by these people. I am not. So it's called Pavlock, which I think is uh, a little pun on Pavlov. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, it's a bracelet you can wear and you can program it to send you electrics if you're doing something that you want to train yourself not to do. So uh, I watched a couple of videos of people who have tried this. So you can, um, you can set it to um, make sure that you don't like sleep too long at night or anything like that. But you can also um, say, okay, I'm, I'm doing a bad habit and I want to stop doing it. So we'll go back to smoking. So you have to voluntarily put this bracelet on and you have to, at the beginning of the training, according to what I watched online, at least I didn't spend like five hours doing this, but I spent, you know, <laughs> half an hour doing some research on this. You, you purposely engage in the bad habit while you're wearing the bracelet and you send yourself electric shocks. So you're trying to condition yourself uh -huh. to find the bad habit unpleasant. Right. And so the idea is you do this on purpose for a few minutes and then you're supposed to kind of like keep it up over five days. Every time you do the bad habit or you start to think, oh, I'd like to do that. You, you send yourself a shock and you're trying to 
give yourself this classical conditioning. And, and there's one version I saw of it where you can give your friends permission to send you shocks. <laughs> so I don't know that I trust my friends that much, but you, oh, can have, my goodness. you can have like this social reinforcement as well. Like some friend of mine just sent me this shock. And so I'm curious as to how popular these are going to be because you, you have to really voluntarily, number one, identify a negative habit that you're truly motivated to stop doing. And mm-hmm. then you have to send yourself electric shock. So right. to me, anyone who's willing to take those steps has really crossed that intrinsic motivation line. <laughs> I, oh my goodness. People will capitalize on anything, really. <laughs> I wish I had invented this. Uh, did, did they say how big the shock is? They didn't in what I saw. I think you can change it to be what whatever level you want. The videos I saw of people who had tried it said it wasn't actually painful. It was more kind of startling. Okay. And it's it's more about when you when you push the button on the bracelet or you like use the app on your phone or whatever and you say send me an electric shock. Yeah. It's it's sort of like a a variable interval in terms of how long is it going to be until I get the shot. So it could be immediate. It could be up to 10 seconds later. And so it's more like this negative anticipation, even that you're going to get the shock. And then it's a surprise when it happens. Mm-hmm. And so the whole experience isn't so much based on pain as it is this like physical anticipation and, and startle response. I guess that there there is some parallels then with uh, the film and Alex's character because it, you definitely see it um, when Georgie and Dim as police officers come and grab him and he's like, oh man, I'm going right. to start feeling sick right now. Right. He's, he's already anticipating this yeah. whole thing is going to go really badly for me. Right. Oh man. I, I don't know if I could do that though. I don't know if I could wear a bracelet that shocks me, nor would I ever give my wow. friends the ability to remotely send mm-hmm. shocks. I couldn't Maybe. even do it to my dog. What, what if you're sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> or, um, you know, writing. I, I, I imagine you don't wear it on your writing hand, but still. Or, or if they're just being jerks and sending it to you, you know, randomly, or, or maybe they're sending it to you when they know you're doing something that you enjoy, and now they're like really going to mess with you because yeah, <laughs> you're going to yeah, have a negative association with this thing that you used to enjoy. Ooh, that's no good. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said on that. <laughs> I wonder how long it will take that company to To get sued. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that they have a lot of disclaimers that you have to sign. Yeah, exactly. Um, One of the things that I did want to mention um, that my wife caught on, on, on this one was the, name of the technique it's a fake technique we should be clear that the aversion therapy uh the uh the classical conditioning aversive therapy that is used in the film is um real in the sense that you know anyone can do it although (sighs) holding somebody's eyes open 
they really did that to Malcolm McDowell too. And he's right. a super champ for doing that. It's like um, method acting right there. That's super method acting. Um, and the guy who had to keep putting eye drops <laughs> right. in his eyes. Uh, so the, the name of the technique for that was made for the film. And I, and, and I kind of went down a rabbit hole on this one. I was like, huh, is this a is this an aversive therapy technique? I need to go look this up. So I literally went on a Google Scholar and I was looking for this technique. It's called the Ludovico technique. And the interesting thing is that it's fake, obviously, as I've just said, but it's linked to Beethoven. Right. And it's just one of those those subtle things that you're like, oh, I see what you're doing there. Right. Yeah. And and that's one of the reasons that I like reading the book version of, of the, the film. I mean, the book came out first, but because um, Burgess has all these sort of like brilliant, subtle references and applications. Um, and it, it's funny because this is not his favorite book that he wrote. He He actually finds it kind of annoying that this is the one that got famous because of the movie um right but he, he he's he's not that impressed with the book himself and so um you know he finds it kind of frustrating that nobody reads any of his other books well you know can't win them all right 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 same as the goal i guess yeah and he, he as as an author he has a little bit more time to describe things that a film just doesn't have the time to right. go into. I think it would have been weird exposit exposition uh, or expository scenes where they're like, Oh, this is my technique. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this is what I do. No, it's easier. It's better to just show it right. um, because that's what it is. That's the medium. You're showing it. And <laughs> by golly, it's, uh, it's, a really good show <laughs> and then it's it's fun to find these little easter eggs like oh the technique is named after beethoven yeah uh i i've, I've seen the film about a handful of times and i never actually got caught on to that and that's why i went down rabbit hole on whether or not it was a real technique mm -hmm. <laughs> it tricked me it tricked me yeah. um any other uh, any other thoughts, uh, details you wanted to drop on the film? We, we br briefly mentioned earlier the sort of toxic masculinity. That's that's another theme in this film. Right. And that's one of the reasons that that sort of final chapter is really important as, mm -hmm. a, as a commentary on the fact that this kind of violence and, and selfishness that Alex portrays is of course horrible and, and harmful both to him and to society. But the point of this last chapter is it's an immature response to the world to have this kind of senseless violence and that mature people choose to not have that kind of reaction to the world. And so I think that's a really interesting point that we don't get in the film, but we do get in the original version of the book. So, um, so I think that's an important point. Okay. And one other yeah. one other thing that I think is really important about both the book and the film is the idea of the ethics of doing research on prisoners. So uh, yeah, um, mm -hmm. the the book came out before this this famous um, kind of committee called the Belmont Report uh -huh. um, that that said you can't do research on certain populations because they can't really give 
informed consent. And prisoners is an example of that, where if you give them some kind of um, compensation or motivation to engage in the research, that's really kind of um, persuading them in a way that someone not in prison wouldn't feel. Right. So it's coercive. It's it's absolutely coercive. That, yeah, that's the word I was kind of searching for. And so that was another point of, of the book in the film is, um, you know, doing this kind of research on prisoners is really not ethical. And and it's interesting that the book came out um, about 15 years before the Belmont Report really kind of solidified that for modern sort of psychological ethics. Yeah, the APA Code of Ethics, you're right. right. Yeah, it, it definitely could be inserted into that. Which films are good for talking about ethical <laughs> human research, right? Right. Up there with uh, the film that came out in 2015 about the Stanford prison experience. Right. I will always forever call it the experience because it's not an experiment. Right. Uh the film that was made about uh, Milgram's work, The Experimenter, which also came out in 2015. It's a good year for uh, older social psychologists. Uh, right. Among among other films where you're like, wait a minute, they're doing some silly stuff to people. <laughs> and that's and they another, really shouldn't be doing that. Another reason that um, for me, social psychology has such an interesting history because a lot of our most famous studies are unethical by today's standards. And so <laughs> right. it's always an interesting um, sort of debate in class to say, should we even still be talking about these? Mm-hmm. Are we glorifying them in this way that they don't really deserve? But on the other hand, if we if we don't, they already happen. Right. The harm has been done. Can we learn from this and can we can we conclude interesting things about social psychology, but also try to not repeat the past of the unethical nature of the study. Right. It, it, it makes a good starting point for saying this is what not to do. Right. Yeah. Although I think that there's certainly variation. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put Milgram and Zimbardo in the same boat really necessarily. That's fair. I will agree. I will agree on that one. Well, uh, any other thoughts, comments? No, just if you haven't seen this film, uh, I hope that our conversation today really kind of intrigued people. And if you have seen the film, but you haven't read the book, I would encourage you to read the book and make sure you Indeed. get an edition with 21 chapters and not only 20. 21. I'm going to have to go check my copy upstairs to find out which one it is. And, and the number 21 is even meaningful. He he purposely had it be 21 chapters because he said 21 is where you actually kind of become an adult in terms of maturity. And, and you have realized I have to kind of give up the selfishness of youth. Hmm. Well, that's a good point. He was a little off on the age, but. Right. Yeah, I think the age enough. is debatable, but <laughs> it, it, it was purposeful when he when he yeah. put it as 21 chapters. But, you know, we've all done things for money right <laughs> <laughs> that's true and he made a lot of money he made a lot of money in you know 1960s money right <laughs> yeah which is pretty good all righty well thank you wind for joining me on this First episode of the, you know, long format 
chatting with uh chatting with a fellow psychologist on super fun topics like film um uh, i want to thank you for uh, joining me on and discussing uh a clock of orange and for those of you who are listening i just want to say please share like and subscribe to the podcast it would be really awesome if you did that and until the next episode Thanks for listening.